Thank you, Metro Crest, for inviting me back to preach. Uh, it's been a real joy to come up here now for a third time and open up God's Word with you all. So thank you for having me. Yet again, for those of you maybe who are new or visiting, my name is Chris Ginchier. I'm a pastor in the PCA, and I live down in Mansfield with my family. And for the last month, this is now the third time I've been able to come up and share the Lord's Day with you all. So thank you for that. Uh, you'll see in your bulletin that we have Jonah chapter 4, which is going to be the text I'm preaching from this morning. And before I do that and give you a chance to turn to it or turn it open or open up your own Bibles to look at it, uh, I have a, another semi-confession to make. This is one of my favorite Old Testament books and passages, as I've talked with some of you before the service. I know it's yours as well. This is a particularly... Um, in some ways humorous and in some ways very serious, small book in the Old Testament. It's only four chapters, so it's easy to read. And it's one that whether or not you grew up in the church or not, you're probably familiar with this story in some capacity. But you'll notice we're not really talking about the parts you might be most familiar with. Uh, for example, the parts that pertain to a gigantic whale swallowing up a man who stays alive and all these other parts. We'll mention them, but we're really focusing on the last chapter. So before I read Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, I, I want to bring us all into the story up to this point. You see, Jonah was a, a prophet of the nation of Israel, a prophet of Yahweh, of God, to his people. And God comes to Jonah, his prophet, at the very beginning of Jonah chapter 1 and says, I want you to go to Nineveh, a capital city of another nation, not my people, but a foreign people, and I want you to deliver this message to them. And Jonah's response as a good, obedient Hebrew prophet was to run in the exact opposite direction, to not do what the Lord was calling him to do. And the story of Jonah up to this point in chapter 4 is really a series of, I call it, great events, because that is literally the word that is on almost every other line, every other sentence. Everything that happens is a great thing that happens, or a magnificent thing, something that is beyond just normal comprehension. In other words, Jonah goes through a great voyage on a great ship that gets threatened by a great storm that then gets led into a great calm once Jonah is thrown overboard. And he's only to be swallowed up by a great fish. And then three days later, vomited out onto dry land to undergo yet another great journey of several hundred miles to preach to a great city that responds with great repentance and experience a great revival. You literally read the word great that many times in the story of Jonah. In other words, there's nothing, there's nothing small about this small little book in the Old Testament. There is something truly great and magnificent and even beyond our, our normal comprehension that's happening here. And if I had to sum up all of that in just a, a simple sentence for us to remember, it's this. What happens to Jonah throughout the first three chapters that lead us to chapter four is that out of Jonah's death, life comes to a, a pagan foreign city. Jonah literally was thrown off of a, a, a seaborne ship by uh, seasoned sailors who were so terrified of this storm 
They literally dropped their cargo. I mean, these were guys who knew what they were doing. They've seen storms, but this was like a perfect storm they had never seen before. And they were fearing for their life. And they knew the only way to, to escape was to appease whatever God was sending this storm. And Jonah reluctantly volunteers. And when it comes time, it was funny, I was talking with James, and he even remind, uh, reminded me of this observation. They, he didn't jump out of the ship. They literally had to toss him out of the ship because he knew he was going to his death. He wasn't going to survive this. What we see, though, when we pick up in Jonah chapter 4, after all of the uh, episodes with the fish and the preaching to Nineveh and the response to that city, is that God pursues Jonah to the point that he finally, albeit reluctantly, obeys. He goes to this city he tried to escape, a capital city of not just a foreign nation, but an enemy nation, to preach a message of warning against them. This would be like engaging in war with a foreign power and then telling them your plans before you do so. The king of Nineveh responds with humility, something the Assyrians were not well known for. He and the kingdom under him all repent and seek the mercy and grace of this God. All on a perhaps. It's literally what he says. Maybe if we do this, this God will relent. This is what happens. A foreign pagan king responds with humility and all the nation follows suit. They repent and seek the mercy of the God who speaks through this reluctant prophet named Jonah. But God is not finished with his prophet or his people yet. And so we come to our passage today where we pick up the final dialogue between God and Jonah and we learn more about this great God who's relentless in his pursuit of people he loves. And like Jonah, we are challenged to consider whether we ourselves care about the same thing that God does. So read with me, if you will, Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And if I could ask just a favor, indulge me as a guest preacher. This might be my tradition, and you don't have to adopt it, but just for today. When I finish reading this passage, I'm going to say this is the, the word of God. And I would love it if you guys would just respond, thanks be to God. Will you indulge me this one Sunday? Thank you. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade for his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. 
And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word to us, as it was to your people in Jonah's day. Help us to hear what you would have us hear and respond how you would have us respond in repentance and faith, trusting in you for everything in our life. This we pray in the name of Jesus, your son, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So from Jonah chapter four, I, I hope to convey and express some of why I find this to be one of my favorite chapters in all of the Old Testament Uh, But I want us to notice three things as we do, and I'm going to walk through this passage. The first thing I want us to notice is the objection of Jonah. This comes out in the first four verses, and then I want us to recognize the objective of God. And at the end, I want us to just be overwhelmed by the nature of God's grace. Let's consider first the objection of Jonah. You notice it starts on a very interesting note, doesn't it? In chapter 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Well, you have to ask. We're starting in the middle of something. What, what was it that displeased Jonah exceedingly? And what had just happened right before this was the king of Nineveh repenting and all of his city and his subjects falling suit. Jonah, he's commissioned to go to this city, Nineveh, mind you, and he's given a word for them. And the word for them from, Lord, from the Lord is this. It is literally one sentence. And it says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. How is that for the shortest sermon ever? You could fit a few more lines on that tweet. There, there is not exposition. There is no explanation There is no introduction and examples and a conclusion. There is no poetry. Uh, There's really no hope, is there not? I mean, it's literally 40 days and you guys are going to get wiped out. And this was the message he was reluctant to give to Nineveh. And yet, when they hear this message, the king responds with, let us repent. Let us actually mourn our sin and our state. And perhaps, in other words, maybe, just maybe, this God who we are meeting for the first time through this man who smells awful will relent. And that's exactly what happens. The whole city repents and Jonah is throwing a hissy fit. It says, it displeased him exceedingly. But another way to translate that is, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah, what just happened in Nineveh. So, 
If we could go back and look at chapter 1 and, and ask the question, why was Jonah so reluctant to go here in the first place? We, we could come up with a few suggestions. One would just be uh, maybe out of a, a, a social kind of reluctance to go to Nineveh. I mean, after all, he is an Israelite. And the Israelites had enemies, and one of them would have been the Assyrians, whose capital was Nineveh. He was also the, the prophet to Israel, not the prophet to the nations. So you have almost a, a professional reluctance to do this. I mean, to go to Nineveh would be seen as almost being a traitor to your own people. There is a, a physical component. I mean, who, who wants to leave the comfort of your home, let alone your homeland, and go to a people who are not known for their hospitality or being nice? These were not good people he was going to. I mean, these were considered by some historians to be the, the Huns of the ancient Near East. If you were to just do a sociological study of the Assyrians, you would say they rival some of the most brutal nations, empires, states, and kingdoms we've ever known. You have all these reasons why he doesn't go, and yet we know that can't be the reason. He doesn't just elect to not go to Nineveh. He literally gets on a ship to go to another foreign nation called Tarshish or another city called Tarshish. And it wasn't like you could go down to, say, Galveston, and you're going to take a Disney cruise that leaves every seven to ten days. This was a, a several-year trip that the, ship, the ships would take out of Israel to go to Tarshish. It, it's potentially likely, we don't know for sure, but it's potentially likely he literally went down and chartered a ship to escape the call. Not that he just happened to to fall into an available seat on this boat. It wasn't socially unacceptable to go to Nineveh. He didn't mind going to Tarshish. It wasn't professionally unacceptable because he completely abandons his call and his people. He doesn't care about what this looks like on his resume. It wasn't physical because as an Israelite, he wasn't a seafaring person. They had green thumbs. They, they, they planted, they harvested, they were shepherds. They didn't like being on the ocean. To them, the seas embraced everything that was chaotic and wrong with the world. In other words, the danger tends to come from the, the sea and the deep. It's not the place you go to find peace. He wasn't after any of these things. For him, the call to go to Nineveh was a call to die in all of these ways, but even more. Here in our passage, it even says why he didn't go. Verse 2. O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that these were a evil, wicked, awful people, and I was going to lose all my status professionally, socially, physically, financially. The reason was, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. His reluctance to go had nothing to do with him. It had everything to do with what he knew about his God and what he would do when a people respond in humility and repentance towards him. You see, Jonah hated the Assyrians. That's why he was reluctant to go. They were the people that could not be saved. They were the people beyond redemption. 
They were the people that he could not tolerate it if they ever were to respond positively to his God and become co-heirs of redemption with him. You notice, too, what he literally says. He's quoting Exodus 34 back to God. He's quoting scripture at God and saying, yes, this is making me displeased. In fact, I'm going to call it exceedingly evil. Let's just ask this question. How is Jonah's theology? It's spot on. But how is Jonah's heart? It is a million miles away from the heart of God. This is the first implication we can draw from this. We need to pay attention to what makes us angry. What, what, what leads us to despair. If it's something that God shares your anger in, or that God himself, if he could, despair over, you're okay. But when it's not, when what you love is at odds with what God loves, when what you hate is at odds with what God hates, we're in trouble. That's not the position we're supposed to be in. You see, our emotions are like the canary in the coal mine of our hearts. They help draw attention to what's really going on beneath the surface. If you want to really know what you truly worship, what makes you exceedingly happy? And when it's threatened, what makes you exceedingly angry? Beyond description. You can't even put your finger on it to identify it. When you get truly angry enough to say that something God can do is exceedingly evil in your eyes, you may not be worshiping the same God anymore. When something you want or perceive that you need becomes threatened and we react with anger or defensiveness or bitterness or dejection, You've just found that thing you really worship. That thing that will make life pleasant and desirable for you. That which you cannot truly live without. And what is that for Jonah in this passage? It's his, we might call it his racial or ethnic and moral superiority. It's he is of the people of God. And they are not. For Jonah, he recognized that he was being called to go to the enemy. People that their whole life hurt him in some way, shape, or form. Their, their whole way of being just threatened him. I mean, Israel was not a military superpower, even though they had their, their seasons of history of success. They were, they were always vulnerable. There was always an attack. There was always another nation coming for them. They could wear a victim mindset and, and they could be justified by it because of their history. And yet, it always, it always spoke of the fact that they were failing to trust in their God to protect them, to, to provide for them what they needed. In fact, the only times they were threatened once they entered the promised land were the times that they actually forgot who God was and who they were supposed to be in response to him. And God would often send these foreign nations to, to come in maybe in some ways to punish Israel for their sin, but more to the point to get their attention, to awaken them to the sleepy state that they had been in, 
to bring to their attention the fact that they had left and abandoned Yahweh a long time ago. Jonah's racial, ethnic, and moral superiority led him to hate the people he perceived as hurting him, to choose his uh, preference that then led to prejudice, that led him to demonize because of what he truly idolized, and it was his own self, his own people's glory. Not God, and not what God could or would do, but themselves. You see, this is critical to understand. It's not just a matter of different opinions on secondary things, because at the very heart, we are either in line and attuned to the very heart of God or we're not. For Jonah to call God and his actions of sparing a city exceedingly evil just shows you the true state of his hard, impenitent, and sinful heart. God's mercy to the people of Nineveh was just something Jonah couldn't tolerate. That's why you notice God answers Jonah with questions. Jonah says, I'm so angry I can die. Will you just, will you just kill me already? I can't live in a world where Nineveh, of all people, repent. He says, my life is over. Go ahead and take it from me. And God just says, time out. Do you do well to be angry here, Jonah? I I love the quiet, calm compassion of God here. I would think, if I could, with a sanctified imagination put myself in a position to say, if I were God and I sent a reluctant prophet to deliver a one-sentence sermon to which then an entire city known for its infamous evil and wickedness repented, and then my prophet talked back to me saying what you just did was exceedingly evil, I don't think I'd have a very calm, compassionate response towards him. In fact, I know what my response would be because I'm not God. And I have that same sinful, cold, hard heart where if you, if you push up against me, I might not react in the most sanctified or holy or wholesome or helpful ways. And yet God looks at Jonah with compassion and says, think about this, Jonah. Do you do well to be angry here? Well, we don't get an answer. Because Jonah just goes off. He goes out of the city and he sits to the east of the city and he, he makes a booth or, or a tent, some kind of structure Because he plans on camping out outside of the city. What is it he is looking for and hoping for as he does this? Well, think about what his sermon was. I'm getting out of here because in 40 days, literally all hell will break loose in Nineveh. And I don't want to be anywhere near here. In fact, I want to be outside of the city, but just close enough that I can watch it. That's what he's setting himself up to do. God keeps coming to him, though. He keeps challenging Jonah. He appoints a plant. He makes it uh, comfortable for Jonah to stay there. He provides a level of shade for his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah now goes from exceedingly angry to exceedingly glad because of the plant. But then dawn comes up, and the next day God appoints a worm that attacks the plant, and then a, a scorching east wind that just destroys the plant. 
And once again, we're back to boo-hoo, disappointed Jonah. He says, it is better for me to die than to live. Yet again. Jonah is so out of sync with God and his own rationality that he is literally despairing of life because something good happens to another city and because he is now uncomfortable. This is how we know what's going on with Jonah is more than just he didn't want to preach that Sunday or that he didn't want to go to those people. And this is what makes God's reaction to Jonah make sense. You see, God isn't just pursuing Nineveh or the Assyrians. He's pursuing Jonah. He's coming after his prophet. He is relentless in his pursuit of the ones who should care the most about him, but don't. And this is the true objective of God. He comes to Jonah with these questions. Do you do well to be angry? In verse 2, verse 4, in verse 9. And he asked this question that is what really kind of locked me into this chapter and unlocked it for me in a compelling way. Verse 11. What does God care about? What's his objective in all of this? He says, you pity the plant, verse, I'm backing up to verse 10. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. In other words, God says, I understand you pity this plant that you did absolutely nothing for. So now, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? That's just funny. Can we just laugh at that for a second? How many of you, when you heard this story and you heard that God was going to wipe out a city, how many of you immediately thought about livestock? (laughs) None of us did. That's the note God ends on. I I just find it funny that what God seems to care about is much more than we give him credit for. Much more than we even care for. I mean, he doesn't just say he cares about the people of Nineveh. He, he literally says, I care about three things in that city. I care about the city itself. The, the, the places where we live and work and play and worship actually have value in the eyes of God. He actually cares about Nineveh. Just like he cares about Dallas and Carrollton or Mansfield. He actually cares what goes on in our communities, not just what goes on in the the, the souls and the hearts and the minds of the individuals of the city. But he, he certainly cares about the people too. When he says, I literally know the number of the people that occupy Nineveh, but this is an approximation number, right? Um, it, it's, it's God's way of saying, I know that there are a great number of people within Nineveh. And he gives them a, a number of 120,000, which would have been like a mega metropolis of the day and the age. But then we get this this curious little detail of who do not know their right hand from their left. And I got to tell you, if you were to go study up on this and research it, you're going to have some uh, commentators and historians and theologians say, oh, well, that's a way of referring to like children. 
uh, people who just cognitively don't understand the difference between right and left. And I, I don't want to uh, cast motives on people, but I think what, what makes us comfortable with that is, sure, of course God wants to spare kids and, and babies. They haven't done anything wicked and evil yet. God's still going to fry all those really bad people, but he's going to spare the kids. But that's, that's not how that, that idiom, that way of talking about people is used in the Hebrew scriptures. To, for someone to not know their right hand from their left is literally someone who is unable to distinguish between right and wrong, good and evil. Now, when you read it that way, that sounds like, okay, that's all of Nineveh. We understand these guys were really bad, bad people. What they thought was to their glory should have been to their shame. What they thought was good was actually evil. Now we understand it. But now do you understand where this puts Jonah in this scenario? The one who literally just called Yahweh evil? In other words, Jonah's right there with the 120,000, even if he's camped out to the east waiting for their destruction. Approximately, he was far away. But in his heart, he was right there with the 120. And God says, should I not care about that great city? Should I not care about all of the people that live there? Who are living life thinking they are on the right track in their own way, and yet completely misinformed and misguided. And should I not also care about the cattle? I mean, you care about a plant. Well, what are the cows going to eat? I used to say, I, I used to get really cute with stuff like this. Maybe it's the marketer that meets the ministry in me. But I used to say, this is God saying he cares about the redemption of all nouns. All peoples, all places, and all things. In other words, when you and I get to heaven, and it's the final redemption and renewal of everything summed up in our head Christ. We're not going to be disembodied spirits like Casper the ghost sitting on harps and clouds. We're going to live in a place that has a structure. We are going to have work we are actually engaged in. We are going to have dogs and cattle and things because what God cares about is more than we give him credit for. He says so right here. Should I not pity? Should I not care about this great city, all of its people, and all of the stuff that makes it kind of work and flow together? The reason why I say this and I emphasize it, hopefully without some of the cutesy marketer speak, is this. It is not an accident that you do what you do when you leave here on Sunday. It is not... It is not by random chance that you are in the job and the profession that you are in. God actually has sent you there. He has called you to go into the great cities and mix it up with some of the great and not so great people and to contribute to some of the things that just make up this life and this world. God is the creator and sustainer of it all. He cares about it all. So don't think of your day job as a means to get through so you can get to the really important stuff. 
It's all part and parcel of what God has called you to. This is a, a sub-theme, but it's still a theme that we see what God cares about. We see that it's not just for Nineveh too, but that it's directed at Jonah. And why is that? It's because Jonah's going to have to record all this and go back to Israel and tell them the story. Because after all, Jonah is a prophet of Yahweh to the people of Israel. He's not a prophet to the people of Nineveh. We read this story, right? And we think, oh, Jonah finally gets it. And Nineveh is finally spared. And it's all great and everything else. But Jonah's actually left with this question. In this way, it acts like the the, the last passage I preached on a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 15 where Jesus tells a story and he doesn't end the story. He leaves it on a note of a question of how will we, hearing this story, enter into it? In other words, God asked Jonah, should I not pity this great city, all these people, and all so much cattle? And Jonah has to answer it. And we know that he does. Because we're reading it. He literally had to get confronted by his own sin, by his own idolatry, by all the ways he was completely far from the heart of God. And he had to go back to the place he had just escaped from. And he had to explain what had just happened, where he had been, why he left, and what the result of it all has been. In other words, we have Jonah in the Hebrew scriptures. Because Jonah is, after all, a prophet to the people of God. And the question that God poses to Jonah is the same question he poses to us. Will we care about the things God cares about? Or will we sit off to the sides in quiet, scolding judgment and just pretend that we know best? And when God does something, say like spare a city like Nineveh, or, uh, golly, uh, save a man like Kanye West, who literally in his lyrics said, I am God, and at one point chose the moniker Jesus, to then release a gospel hip-hop album and get on circulated TV with all of the nighttime syndicated radio hosts to have Jimmy Kimmel ask him the question after saying Jesus is Lord five times, because that's the name of the album, are you now a Christian artist, Kanye? He says, yes, I'm a Christian artist. I'm a Christian everything. That's what happens when Jesus is Lord. I never would have thought in a million years Kanye West would ever say that. But neither did Jonah think Nineveh would ever repent. Who, who is it that stands out in your mind as the, the one person that could never respond to God? Who is it that is completely in your mind and in your heart beyond the pale of redemption and forgiveness? Who is it in your life that you just know will never change? Are you thinking and caring in the same way that God thinks and God cares about that person? That's what Jonah is confronted with. That's what Israel was confronted with. That's what we are continually confronted with. 
You see, it's our sin and our idolatries become the obstacles to receiving and passing off God's redeeming grace. In other words, they clog the, the spiritual arteries of our lives so that his grace neither comes through us, it doesn't even get down to us. And yet we can have all the right theology, all the right credentials, live in the right neighborhoods, and completely be separate from God. The thing is, though, you and I, even if we understand the objections of Jonah and the objective of God, we need something more than Jonah to overwhelm us out of that state. We'll never get past these obstacles or do the work of uprooting these idols and identifying them and repenting of them or even just caring about the things God cares about on our own until we see that we have someone greater than Jonah who does the work that Jonah should have done in the first place. I want to read this one quote. It's from a... uh, a Croatian Christian theologian. I'm partial to this man because I married a Croatian. And, uh, and I don't meet too many Cro- Croatian theologians. But it's Miroslav Volf, who is a professor out at Yale. And while I don't agree with him on everything, I think he nails what the cross is and its relevance for our lives. In his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he talks about how the ancient church used to talk about the Trinity because it's still hard to fathom. What he said was the early church adopted this language. In fact, they created this word called perichoresis. And it literally is these two Greek words coming together, peri meaning around and through all at the same time, and choresis like a dance, like choreography. And they said, when we think about the Trinity, one God and three persons, that each person is distinct and unique, and yet they are one and acting together. He said, it looks like three people engaged in a dance. And it's sometimes hard to tell the distinction where one person ends and one person begins because they're so linked and in lockstep. It's like dancing with the stars times a thousand. Right? You, you can barely perceive the movements. And yet, they're so in lockstep. So, he takes this language and he applies it because you know, he was imprisoned because he was a, a Christian in the former Yugoslavia. And, and his own people said, we don't think you're one of us anymore. In fact, we think you're working for the enemy. So he was put in the equivalent of a Yugoslavian Gitmo for months, interrogated and tortured just because he was a Christian. And he comes out and he has to reconcile with the fact of, well, what do I do when I see my torturer on the street? I'm a Christian after all. Does my, does my identity in Christ inform the way I respond to people who persecuted me, who did evil to me, who I'd much rather hate than try and help? And so he, he wrote this book called Exclusion and Embrace, and this is where he sums up the cross in, I think, a very profound and beautiful way. He says, when the Trinity turns toward the world, The Son and the Spirit become the two arms of God by which humanity was made and taken into God's embrace. That same love that sustains non-self-enclosed identities in the Trinity seeks to make space in God for humanity. Humanity is, however, not just the other of God, but the beloved other who was an enemy. When God sets out to embrace the enemy, the result is the cross, On the cross, the dancing circle of self, 
giving and mutually indwelling divine persons opens up for the enemy. There's a lot of big words there. What he's saying is, these are three beings held together in perfect love from eternity past to eternity future. And yet their arms are open wide to embrace the person who was an enemy and bring them into the fellowship. Opens up for the enemy. In the agony of the passion of Jesus Christ on the cross, the movement stops for a brief moment and a a separation appears, an opening appears so that sinful humanity can join in. The cross, in other words, is when the music stops for a moment and we see the true heart of God. The true heart that says, I am perfectly happy and content with myself. I have no need for you. I could just as easily snap my fingers and you'd be gone. And yet, I didn't create you just to destroy you. I pity you. I care for you. So much so that my son, the second person of the Trinity, is going to literally be sent into your world from his home. And he's going to come and not just tell you about me, but do for you what you should do in response to me. And he's not going to go outside of a city just to wait for its destruction. He's going to go outside the city so he can be nailed to a cross, not by nails, but because he loves that city. And his arms aren't going to be crossed over because he's throwing a hissy fit that my father would spare these idiots. His arms are going to be stretched out open because he's there to welcome and embrace enemies like you and me in. He goes to the cross the day before and he starts weeping over Jerusalem. Not because they were a wicked city that was repenting, but because they were a righteous city that failed to repent. He's there on the cross and instead of saying, Father, I've had enough. Strike them down. He says, no, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. They can't see that they don't know their right hand from their left. They don't see that what you have sent as eternally good and gracious, they are calling exceedingly evil. And yet his last words were not destroy them, but forgive them. Friends, he had you and me in mind when he said that. He was thinking about you when he opened up his arms to forgive you and to love you, despite you, and to bring you into his own happy, eternal home with himself to take us as enemies and turn us into family. This is what God does. This is what God cares about. And the question for us is, will we care in the same way? Will we receive this overwhelming grace instead of just sitting on our rights, on what we perceive to be our own privileges? Will we die to ourselves so that others could even experience the same grace we have been given? In other words, will we repent? Not only of our sin, but of our righteous and damnable good deeds. And will we actually believe and trust in the one who loves us despite us, who sends his son to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, who is more than just the sign of Jonah, but the true 
and better Jonah we need. 